This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin? I'm here. I'm here. It took me a while. Uh, I'm sorry. So sorry that I I was late. I I messed up, but I'm I'm all set up. I'm ready to go. Uh, I guess you already did the intro, so are we doing this? Okay, let's just uh, continue on as if nothing ever happened. (laughs) I think we might be able to do that. Um, Bit of a change of plans. So this week we were going to be covering Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Instead of covering that, we are going to be talking about The Banshees of Inisherin, Martin McDonough's latest film. Well, things didn't go according to plan with Wakanda Forever. We are going to be featuring a capsule review of that uh, from Sarah only later in the episode. We are going to be adhering to our normal plans, though, with our watch list segment where we're going to be talking about Joe Johnston's The Rocketeer. Definitely got to keep up with those superhero movies. Definitely got to keep up somehow. I'm sorry for the change in plans, but we're going to make it happen here on episode 357 of Seeing and Believing. Harlem Sonny Larry. Didn't you? He used to be the best of friends. We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. Did you like me yesterday? Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been dull. The other night, two hours, you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. If you don't stop talking to me... Colin! And if you don't stop bothering me, I have a set of shears at home. And each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears and I'll take one of my fingers off with them. And I'll give that finger to you until I have no fingers left. Does this make things clearer to you? Not really, no. Starting from now. But shush like, Polly. You know, shush like. Yeah, I'd shush like. Yes, here we are on episode 357 of Seeing and Believing. And from that intro... Attentive listeners might be asking themselves, wait a minute, (laughs) I thought that they were going to be reviewing Wakanda Forever Mm -hmm. as one of their primary films this week. And we were, we were, that attentive listener would be correct. Unfortunately, uh, certain circumstances (laughs) asserted themselves that made that impossible for this week's episode. Um, And it's all my fault. Yeah, yep, yep. I was at the movie theater kind of doing like a waiting for Godot routine, but waiting for Black Panther and also waiting for Kevin. Yeah, (laughs) and yeah, Mm -hmm. I never showed up. Uh, It was, 
Uh, an unfortunate oversight on my part. Fortunately, listeners, because Sarah is on top of things, we will be getting her uh, capsule review of Black Panther 2 uh, later on in the show. But because I wasn't able to make it, we did pull an audible. And I'm looking forward to talking about this one because this is one of the films that uh, I was really looking forward to when we did our fall movie preview. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite crack my top five, if I recall, but it was on my honorable mentions. It was. And that would be The Banshees of Inishirin. Yes. So uh, the film's official synopsis is as follows. Set on a remote island off the west coast of Ireland, The Banshees of Inishirin follows lifelong friends Podrick, played by Colin Farrell, and Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson, who find themselves at an impasse when Colm unexpectedly puts an end to their friendship. A stunned Podrick, aided by his sister Siobhan, played by Carrie Condon, and troubled young islander Dominic, Barry Cogan, endeavors to repair the relationship, refusing to take no for an answer, but Podrick's repeated efforts only strengthen his former friend's resolve, and when Colm delivers a desperate ultimatum, events swiftly escalate with shocking consequences. So, Sarah, McDonough's screenplays are known at this point for their caustic, hard-edged take on human behavior and a sort of sublimated spiritual angst. This is also a return to his native Ireland Mm -hmm. after his Oscar-winning foray into American culture with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So to get us started, I guess, number one, I want to say at the outset, I apologize to any uh, people of Celtic descent who take offense to my mangling of these Gaelic names. But more to the point, Sarah, I'm really curious to know what you thought of McDonough's use of his signature themes and styles in this particular setting. Yeah, um, I dug them. I really liked them. Um, Really liked feels like a really weird way to put it, honestly, just because this is such a caustic movie. But I think what McDonough's doing here is he's exploring the human capability for cruelty and selfishness without putting too fine a point on it and without getting wrapped up too deeply in that level of cruelty. I I think he's good at exploring the consequences of that cruelty and the fallout of that cruelty, but it doesn't feel like he's wallowing here. It feels like he's giving a really measured, interested look at both parties in this conflict, one of whom knows precisely what he wants, but is incapable of um, articulating it, which I think is very interesting coming from McDonough, who is known for his dialogue and who turns in some incredible dialogue here. And then another party who is incapable of fathoming those reasons, even after they've been explained to him. And so, so much of the movie's appeal is the push and pull between these two characters as they're attempting to come to terms with what they used to have and what they have now and what each of them wants, which is the exact opposite thing that the other wants. Um, And being unable to let go of each other even after there's been an attempt to, I don't know, break that relationship. Um, And I think one of the things that I most appreciate about this movie is that this feels like a very measured approach to this kind of relationship it's very strange like I I can't think of any other story that tells a story quite like this um it's a measured approach and it's a measured approach that doesn't feel like it's going to take sides with either one and it also doesn't feel like it's resorting to both sidesism at all at the same time it feels very balanced so Kevin I'm curious to know did you come away feeling that same way yeah I really liked how 
this movie, like you said, doesn't try to exp- over-explain motivations at all. Colm says at the top of the movie when he he tells Podrick, I just don't like you anymore. I don't want to be your friend. I don't want to talk to you. Leave me alone. Um, I just I don't want to explain it. I can't explain it. Just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And it, he, that's really all it is. And um, the in the context of the film, it just feels like such an elegant way to sort of embody this sort of free-floating big question like why are people the way they are Mm -hmm. and it's it's a question that's so enormous that it can't really be satisfactorily an answer can't be articulated in any way that doesn't feel trite Mm -hmm. i would say or and i think mcdonough gets that and he basically has made a movie about human nature but it's not it's not a movie that exceeds to explain human nature it's just sort of a movie that kind of tries to get at the problem obliquely of why are people awful to each other what do we owe to each other Mm. um when conflict arises like why does that conflict even arise (laughs) like there's no particular reason for column to have such an intense aversion to Podrick in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's not really, he, he gives a reason that you know, he feels like uh, Podrick's boring. He just wants to make better use of his time, but you get the sense that that's not really it, or at least that's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. And rather than trying to end the movie with a big explanation of, of it, McDonough just kind of, lets Padre keep beating his head against that wall, trying to get an answer and an answer never comes. Mm -hmm. And that feels, it feels true. It feels existential in a way that Padre is constantly looking for an answer that is not forthcoming, will never be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. And even if he were to get an answer, it wouldn't satisfy him. Mm -hmm. And there's something almost spiritually true about that and spiritually pure about that. And Mm -hmm. I appreciated how McDonough leans into it with this. I like that you mentioned the spiritual angle because at the same time that this very small conflict is happening between these two men over on the mainland in Ireland, um, the Irish Civil War is going on as well. It's it's the late 1920s and um, there is a civil war happening and we don't really see much of that conflict other than the occasional bombs going off on the coast. Um, But that civil war had its roots in religious differences as well. So there's there's this question of, you know, Catholic versus Protestant. Um, Do I stay or do I go? Um, Do we stay together and figure this thing out or are we just going to fight each other over it? And are we kind of essentially deadlocked in a conflict that we're not going to be able to find a solution for? So I'm I'm curious because this is one thing that I'm not quite so sure about, and maybe it's because I'm not as familiar with the cultural context of what's going on in Ireland here. Did this work for you when the conflict was held up to this historical backdrop of the Irish Civil War, or was that just additional scene setting? Um, did it inform the conflict in any way? I thought that McDonough struck the, the perfect balance with that in not really drawing so strong of a connection between the civil war and the interpersonal relationships in this island village Mm -hmm. 
Because that also would have felt kind of pat, like he's making a self-important movie about a historical conflict that kind of, again, tries to over-explain. It's just sort of, it's something that's in the atmosphere. It's, it's, they can hear it from afar off and they discuss it all the time, but none of them really, none of the villagers really have a clear sense of why the conflict is happening. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's Irishmen killing Irishmen. Uh, there are, there's a pretext for them doing it, but it's not, it's, it's, it's a lot hazier than yeah. than uh, you might think. And that ties into the central conflict as well, is that there's not really a clear reason for Colm and Patrick to be at loggerheads here, other than that Colm just decides one day that he just doesn't like Podrick all that much. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the conflict in Ireland broke down along religious lines, but... It wasn't as if that conflict grew out of deep theological disagreements. The people killing each other weren't necessarily doing it because they felt so deeply strongly about Catholic or Protestant theology that they were going to kill somebody for it. There were it was deeper than that almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like I'm, I feel like I'm kind of not articulating this well, and I think that's because the movie is such a perfect argument for it that trying to elaborate on, on it further kind of misses the point mm, mm-hmm. um mcdonough didn't doesn't try to elaborate on these themes in dialogue so it feels like me trying to do the same in a review of it is sort of like trying to do his job except worse <laughs> <laughs> i think that makes sense it, it may be that i got a little bit tripped up on that partly because of the way that he approaches the central conflict in three billboards outside ebbing missouri which we don't have to get into here but is a lot more explicit about the sociological and historical like backgrounds behind a lot of those characters i think and for this one you're, you're right i mean we've spent more time talking about the conflict over on mainland Ireland than any of the characters in the movie do just talking about it in this review so I I think that makes total sense um I don't know like I still keep coming back to it because it feels like it's a shadow that's hanging over the movie and again I don't have a ton of of that background or that historical knowledge so it's something that makes me almost wonder like should I know a little bit more out of of this and would I get additional like depths out of that story and at the same time I don't feel like I needed those additional depths because the story that he's telling as it stands right there on Inisharan is so self-contained and also so expansive at the same time that it kind of encompasses anything that you need to say about it in order for it to make sense if that makes sense I I don't have a particularly strong grounding in the Irish Civil War either. I I just read a book recently about the Troubles, but that of course comes much later and has its roots in the in in some of the conflict that goes on in the 1920s. I think is when this mm-hmm. uh, film is set. Um, but I don't I, I don't have a particularly clear idea of the stakes of that conflict or the different sides mm-hmm. or the politics of it. And I don't think that's necessary. And I think that's one of the great things about this movie is it's about human behavior and it's situated in a very specific milieu, but it's not 
dependent on you understanding that milieu for the human behavior to make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and McDonough's so smart about that human behavior. And I love that it's, it's studied not just between calm and Podrick, but also between all of the other different villagers around the, the town. Um, there's a woman who runs the post office, who's clearly like the nosy, like she, she's a gossip essentially. And she's trying to get as much news as she can out of everybody else. And I think we've all known somebody like that. And yet she feels so specific that I feel like I was meeting another person for the first time when she first popped up. Um, I'm curious to know too, um, just who of the supporting cast I think worked, worked for you. I thought Carrie Condon as Padraig's sister Siobhan Mm. was fantastic in this movie. And I think she's sneakily kind of a linchpin for the entire film because Mm. the, the central conflict is so, uh, it's so intense and it goes to such, extreme ends and uh, as you allude to kind of at the top of of this review mcdonough doesn't really pull his punches right like he he leans into the the despair of these characters um column at the end of the day columns um big the the motivating force behind his uh dislike for podrick uh, comes down to basically despair mm-hmm. um, and the fact that despair as distinct from depression is an act of will it's something that's chosen um, and it's a, a very grave spiritual danger mm-hmm. and we see the dark places to which that spiritual danger leads leads these two men mm-hmm. by contrast Siobhan is she set like she, her life is hard also she also experiences great emotional turmoil uh for different reasons over over the course of this film Mm -hmm. she feels trapped um for different reasons because of her obligation to her brother but crucially where whereas podrick kind of takes a different path once he decides that there's no further hope in a reconciliation happening Mm -hmm. um he goes into he goes off into uh (laughs) A darker place, shall we say, whereas Siobhan, she responds to her entrapment differently. Mm. And I th- I think Condon's portrayal of those two, those two uh, modes are really effective. She's, she really gets across the fact that Siobhan has her own desires and her own wants that are not being met. Um, but she also plays kind of a gentleness and a hope mm-hmm. to Siobhan that I think is so crucial at character working and also to provide kind of a counterpoint to the main melody that these two uh, ex-friends are are playing. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I think before you'd mentioned Siobhan, I would have said that Podrick is also operating out of a sense of hope. It's definitely misplaced hope, but it's hope that maybe he can get this relationship back that he very clearly values and a lot of his life revolves around. But I think Podrick's hope is kind of a a regressive, like a looking back at, I used to have something and I don't have it anymore. And so I'm going to try to regain it. And I I feel like Siobhan's hope is something that is, it's turned outward. It's, it says, I don't have what I'm looking for here. So I'm not going to be able to find that satisfaction here either. And I, I really appreciate that it doesn't take up too much of the movie and it doesn't really feel like McDonough is drawing too fine a point on it, but the point is there anyway and, and it's there if you, if you look. I mean, 
basically Podrick chooses despair yeah. <laughs> over the course of the film. He he by degrees decides that there's nothing for it uh, but to kind of follow Colum down down whatever uh, pit that they're kind of they're they're locked together and they're going down together. Mm-hmm. Um, Siobhan does she she chooses hope I guess and I don't want to give away exactly the decisions that she ends up making t- in keeping with that mm-hmm. but she ends up in a very different place than Patrick does by the end of the film and that I think is key to McDonough's whole point with the movie is not he's not trying to like rub our noses and just a bunch of people in a small town who just feel like their lives are going nowhere and it just stinks for them mm-hmm. i think siobhan is kind of points us to a different and a, and a better way mm-hmm. um and again like that feels it feels spiritually tinged it's not explicit about it but it's definitely there this feels a little bit like you know how people talk about flannery o'connor uh and the god haunted south mm-hmm. this this Ireland also feels very God haunted mm. um, in a different way, but to similar ends, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also f- feel like this story feels haunted by love specifically of McDonough for the characters that he's written to. Mm. Um, it seems clear that he loves these characters and a lot of that comes out in the script and in the way that he gives each of them their own unique and distinct voice. I think a lot of it also comes out in the direction and in the way that these actors play these characters as well. I'm thinking specifically of Colin Farrell, especially like I love this performance. He's incredible. He's had an incredible year Um, between, you know, being completely unrecognizable in the Batman, being incredible in After Yang. Um, and then also just this performance in particular, like I would not be able to pick a favorite out of those three. Um, but this one comes with so much nuance. And it's it's not just in the way that he delivers the lines, but just in the way that he holds himself and the way that he holds his face. Um, he's got those gigantic big black eyebrows and they're kind of pointed up at the middle for most of this movie because he's he's clearly like worried and concerned and very confused and is not really sure what's going on. And so many of the good line deliveries are ones that are not hammy. They're not overdone. They're kind of whispered. Like I feel like the moments where I wanted to just kind of sit up in my seat and and cheer were the moments when Podrick says something that he thinks he's not really entirely sure that he should say, but he's going to say it anyway, but he's going to whisper it because he doesn't want to like browbeat somebody else into it. And that's just such a a lovely, like nuanced piece of, of this character who feels very much at home in his skin and in his place, but is in a situation where He's completely out of his depth and does not know how to handle himself, does not know how to handle this man that he thought he knew but doesn't know anymore. And just that that sense of uncertainty, like the performance is incredibly assured. And I think part of why it works is because I can't feel that assuredness. All I feel is the anxiety behind this character. I well, Padraig, he, he's he's such a simple person, right? He's he he likes simple pleasures. He likes going to the pub with his pal. He likes his donkey. He likes uh, he just is okay with the day to day of driving animals to and from the fields, inspecting their their excrement to make sure that they're healthy. And talking about those subjects with 
with his best buddy. And that's kind of, he's content with that. And I think Farrell's performance is so good because he portrays that honestly, but he doesn't condescend to Podrick. There's never a sense that this movie is laughing at Podrick or making him the butt of a joke or overplaying its hand in in showing how, like he's simple, but he's not simple-minded. Mm-hmm. And I think that distinction is something that uh, could have easily been lost either in the writing or the performance, but it's it's fully present here, fully realized. Farrell is so good. He has this one big scene um, where in a less in a different kind of movie, it would sort of be the climax where he he gets drunk at the pub and he confronts Colum and and he says he gives this big speech about how it's important to be nice. You know, mm-hmm. like art doesn't matter, niceness matters. I remember my mother; she was nice. I remember my father; she was nice. I don't care about Mozart. I remember my family. They're mm-hmm. great. Um, and it's a, a genuinely stirring speech. It's wonderful. Um, and Farrell sells it. He he makes you feel the uh, the sadness and confusion that Podrick feels in that moment too. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this big emotional climax. And then the movie's got like two thirds of its runtime left to go. Mm-hmm. And Martin McDonough is is very clearly saying like, yeah, that's great, Podrick. Podrick is you know he he said his piece, but mere good-heartedness isn't going to save him mm-hmm. uh his, his salvation won't come through works i guess <laughs> if you want to get a little bit uh lutheran about it um I, I don't know i think i think it's wonderful that we get that kind of a performance in a film like this where it could be so bleak but i think the humanity of the the that's apparent in the way these characters and the way these actors play these characters is, I don't know, it's frankly wonderful. I, it has some of my favorite performances of the entire year, maybe. Mm-hmm. Possibly, yeah. Um, and not just Colin Farrell. I think Brendan Gleeson is also incredible in this, too, although playing a very different kind of character. He's he's kind of just a, a still rock <laughs> and a little bit unfathomable. And when he starts to speak his piece... I'm kind of on board with some of the stuff that he says, even though there's there is a level of cruelty towards the way that he is pushing Podrick aside. I also understand that drive to say, I don't feel like I'm getting enough done with my life. And so I want to go out and I want to create great art and I want to do great things. And I want to just stop talking about the simple pleasures like both of these men. I think, have very different motivations and things that they care about and value. And I can see where that would have really worked well to fuel a friendship in the past. And I can see where that's going to be the wedge that drives them apart. And I can also see myself very easily siding with one or the other at any given point throughout their argument until things get a little bit nastier. <laughs> um, and then af- after that point, I think I'm, I'm out and I'm done and I'm just going to be somebody who's sitting in the pub bemused by all of this. Um, but at the same time, I feel like even after things get nasty, um, I can still sympathize with both of these men and I can still feel compassion for both of these men. And a lot of that has to do with the filmmaking that McD- McDonough is doing here. Let's talk about that a little bit more. I'm curious to hear, hear more from you about that because this, it, you know, it th- this conflict does go to some some dark places. The the ultimatum that I mentioned in the plot synopsis that Colm eventually gives Podrick, he says, "If you don't stop bothering me, I'm going to do something really drastic, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make sure you know it. I'm going to make sure that you know it's because of you." Mm-hmm. Um, and 
without giving away too much, the the threat is proven to be very sincere. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm curious because uh, McDonough doesn't shy away from portraying that. I, how do you, what do you make of that? That ultimatum and the way it's it's shown on screen. It feels well. One, it's it's an incredibly <laughs> dramatic ultimatum. I didn't believe that he was going to follow through with it, and then I think the moment that he does follow through with it, I realized the sincerity and the depth of his despair, because he feels as though he has been driven to this is my only way out of this situation because I cannot get this other man to leave me alone, even though I have asked multiple times, please leave me alone. I don't want to be a part of your life anymore um i get it i also don't get it at the same time and i think what's so compelling about the filmmaking is that mcdonough isn't going to shy away from the consequences of that decision and he's also not going to back down it doesn't feel like a head fake it feels like a commitment both on the part of the filmmaking and on the part of colm and his character's decisions and so um for me I don't know. It, it it feels as though it gets at the level of despair that Colm is feeling without him ever having to say it out loud. He's expressing himself in the only way that he knows how, which is dramatic action and an attempt to drive away probably the person who cares about him the most in his life and on the island. And once you get to that level of like, once you get to that depth I think the only thing that you can do is to continue to pursue that person, which is why I understand why Podrick continues to do what he does. And at the same time, I, I totally get why Colmas says, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to keep on going down this path. And if you if I'm going down, then you're going to come down with me, essentially. It feels a lot like an animal chewing off its own leg to get out of a trap. Mm. Uh, like he's he he's so he he feels like he is so so cornered that there's no other way out for him uh, than to go to these extreme ends. And again, like to an outside observer, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't seem to fully make sense. Like how would it possibly be justified for you to engage in this activity mm -hmm. just to get a guy to stop talking to you? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's something that McDonough kind of gets about humanity is that, you know, no, a lot of the choices that we make make no sense to an outside observer, but they make perfect sense to the person who is living that experience and simply sees no other option because they're so uh, desperate. There's there's so much existential uh, angst bound up in Colm's decisions in this film mm -hmm. that it, it feels like even if you obviously can't relate to that specific relationship, uh, I mean – Anyone who's sort of felt sort of a desperation about, you know, where their life is going or, you know, the looming specter of their own mortality or others' mortality, uh, the fear of being left behind by somebody you care about, mm -hmm. those things can drive a person to very extreme ends. So have I ever, you know, gone to extreme ends just to get somebody to stop talking to me? No. Have I felt the desire to go to extreme ends for other reasons yeah and i think most people can i think mcdunn's ability to kind of instantiate that in this particular way in this film is really great mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's a carefully observed story told with care and i don't know like i, f I feel lucky to have been able to to catch it
Well, uh, listeners, you can catch The Banshees of Inishirance currently in theaters, so uh, you ought to be able to catch it pretty much anywhere these days. Um, if you've had a chance to see it and have thoughts about McDonough's whole uh, sublimated spiritual angst or uh, <laughs> the great performances or anything else, let us know. There's obviously a lot to talk about with this film. I feel like my expectations for it and looking forward to it uh, this fall were were met absolutely yeah um so you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com with your thoughts or if you are still on twitter you can tweet us at see believe pod don't go anywhere we are going to feature sarah's capsule review of wakanda forever and then move on to a little bit of a different comic book movie with our review of the rocketeer it's coming right up This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. So welcome to the part of the show that is usually the conversation, mm-hmm. the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all our listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. We are going to slightly repurpose this part <laughs> of the show to be a, a different conversation in which I ask you what you thought of Wakanda Forever because, like I said, I am a dumb and <laughs> did not get to the screening uh, in time for uh, recording. So the conversation has now been rebranded into Sarah monologues about Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Yeah, we, with the subtitle, Kevin is a dumb, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, so you did see Wakanda Forever. I did. Um, this is, of course, the sequel to Black Panther and it had to be kind of repurposed on the fly because Chadwick Boseman tragically passed of cancer. And given that he was the lead of the first Black Panther, he was T'Challa, um, that kind of left the series kind of wondering, where is it going to go from here? Mm-hmm. And with this new film, Wakanda Forever, it seeks to answer that question. Mm-hmm. This is where we're going. So to get us started, Sarah, I, like, uh, obviously you're going to tell us what you thought of the film in general, but I'm curious specifically to hear about how Ryan Coogler, the director, and the small army of creatives that power the MCU, how they solved that that dilemma. You know, where does this franchise go without Chadwick Boseman's outsized presence at the helm? It's a tricky it's a tricky proposition, really. And I don't know, it feels like there's a lot of weight riding on Black Panther Wakanda forever. Not only the fact that Chadwick Boseman is passed, but also the fact that the MCU phase four isn't doing so hot right now. And so it kind of feels as though this this movie is also like their only hope to continue in making more for the Marvel machine, essentially. And so this movie is is kind of at war with itself because it has those two motivating factors. One, it needs to keep the wheels greased in order to be able to continue to make additional comic book movies. And then it also... Um, 
has this motivating factor of doing justice to the legacy of Chadwick Boseman. And I think in the first respect, Wakanda Forever does a pretty good job of that. Um, a lot of the movie is taken up with mourning the passing of King T'Challa, um, which happens off screen. They do a really good job of of not trying to milk out the tragedy of of any of that situation at all. It doesn't feel as though there's there's a lot of like zombified you know CGI characters popping out of the works in order to you know create content. Um, so I I think that that part of the story and that that retooling of this character's story was very well done, and so. A lot of the pieces of the movie where T'Challa's family are mourning him and trying to figure out how how do we go on? How do we lead Wakanda into the future world? How do we um, assert ourselves in a world where our king is gone? Um, those pieces, I think, work pretty well. The problem is that this movie has that Chadwick Boseman shaped hole kind of at the center of it. And so, so much of his shadow is over this movie that... Um, even in the moments where the other characters are mourning his passing and they're trying to come to grips with what, what do they do now? Um, I couldn't help but feel as though there was just kind of an empty space in the middle where his character would have been. And then at the same time, you also have this additional, um, motivation of being able to tell another larger epic story that involves a lot of these other characters that has nothing to do with the passing of T'Challa at all. So um, once you get into the more typical MCU machin plot machinations, I think things start to go off the rails because there is so much plot that has to be delivered. There are so many additional characters that need to be introduced. So we get a new character of Riri Williams, um, who is played by Dominique Thorne, um, as a new addition to the MCU and as a new addition to, you know, the potential slate of Avengers later on down the line. And um, I remember being vaguely aware of her character in the comic books when she was first introduced back in 2016, I think. But I didn't get a really good sense of who she is or what motivates her beyond just she's very smart and she's a future Avenger, essentially. And that problem kind of extends to the rest of the characters who populate this movie, including our villain Namor the Submariner, played by Tanak Huerta, who is an antagonist who is given a lot of, I think, very valid reasons to be an antagonist in this story, but the movie isn't willing to delve into those emotional depths at all. I, I feel like the movie gives him a lot to do in terms of plot and not a lot of that emotional depth that allows him to be a particularly compelling villain or character within the rest of this gigantic saga that now sprawls, I don't know, the, the last 15 years or so. I mean, you you used a lot of words like, you know, gigantic, epic. Mm -hmm. It seems like this movie, uh, you know, even without having seen it, everyone kind of knew, you know, it was going to be, the scale was going to have to be big. It was going to have, it has that, you know, 160 minute runtime. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, has to deal with the obligation to um, reconcile itself to, to Bozeman's loss, but also kind of move the, the franchise forward because what is a franchise if it's not moving forward? Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions that, uh, I was that's in my mind uh, about this movie uh, until I'm able to catch up with it. Um, but going into like looking ahead to it, whenever I do catch up with it, one of the questions in my mind is how does it kind of 
suture all of those different things together? Do, do, does it end up as sort of this Frankenstein's monster of <laughs> competing uh, needs and obligations? Uh, or does it successfully kind of marry them and meld them together into something that works? It sounds to me like you, the answer, your answer to that is not really. It sort of works. I think it could have been a lot more disastrous, but I think it also could have been a lot better probably. Um, so a lot of the action happens with um, T'Challa's younger sister, Shuri, who has essentially taken up like the mantle of leading the country along with along with her mother. And so a lot of this story has to do with the women of Wakanda trying to figure out their way forward in the world and dealing with being doubted by the other countries around them. They're referred to as the most powerful nation on earth multiple times in dialogue. And so they have to figure out how to assert that power without ceding any um, space in the global place. Um, and then there's also a, uh, Kind of, kind of a more individual thread that I think would have been a lot more compelling if the movie had spent more than thirty seconds on it, which is Shuri's level of doubt. Um, there is a, there is a thread of doubt that runs through her character and is alluded to a couple of times, very briefly throughout the movie, where she talks about if she had been able to save her brother, then maybe she would believe in the goddess Bast a little bit more, um, or if she had been able to do the things that her science had afforded her to do, then maybe she would be a little bit more inclined to believe. And I, th I think that that level of both doubt in a higher power and then also self-doubt at war within this character would have been a lot more compelling than trying to move a lot of faceless characters against a backdrop of, of essentially global war or the threat of it. Um, so the moments where the movie is willing to rein back a little bit and deal a little bit more with the personal interplay between the characters and then also their own doubts and feelings. That's where it really works for me. The problem is that those are kind of inserted into mm. much larger, kind of flat looking battles that seemed to extend well past where they were going to serve those characters. So, I mean, by my lights, that sounds like a lot of the, the same things that were going on with the first Black Panther, which, uh, I haven't seen the second one, so I can't compare the two, but the first Black Panther for me, when I think about that, I think about a movie that was just, there are parts of it that are so good, mm -hmm. so good. And yet at the end of it, there's a giant CGI battle scene mm -hmm. uh, that's not particularly, that's not filmed in a particularly interesting fashion. And that isn't really necessary to resolve the actual conflict of the movie mm -hmm. um, and sounds to me like this is a little bit more of the same, which is a, a common refrain maybe with, with MCU movies is just there's, there's interesting elements, but it kind of gets drowned out by the formula in the end. And I think they're really trying to get around those formula pieces by putting in the interesting elements. I just wish that the interesting elements were given the foreground instead of the background and in, instead of being used to fill in the cracks, essentially. Oh, well, well, there's, there's always the next Marvel movie. There'll be plenty more to come. I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so that, that is our review or your review, I guess, of Wakanda forever. Uh, listeners, obviously this is a movie that a lot of you are going to see. So we're interested in your thoughts yes. to tide us over until then, Sarah, you did have a question that you posed on, Twitter about uh, what people's favorite 
uh, super villains were, or comic book villains, if not super villains. Yeah, I, I specifically said superhero movie villain, kind of thinking like it could be a comic book villain, but it might not have to be. And we got a couple of really good answers, including uh, Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Glass and Unbreakable. So tying back into that superhero movie villain without necessarily being based on a comic book, if I'm right. Um, that answer came from Dave Lester. So thank you, Dave. I think that's a great pick. I, I think Dave, didn't Dave also uh, shout out uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman from Batman Returns? Mm -hmm. I caught up with Batman Returns for the first time a few years ago and was absolutely blown away by her performance in that film. She is electrifying. In oh, that. yeah. And she would probably be on my short list as well. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite, like, angry characters, I think. Um, we also got a couple of shout outs to uh, Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger from the first Black Panther, who I, I think is a superhero movie villain who raises a couple of very good points. And I like that performance quite a bit as well. Um, we also got, of course, quite a few shout outs to Heath Ledger's Joker, who I've got to say is probably going to be my pick for this answer. It's hard not to pick Ledger's Joker be mm -hmm. because he's easily the best thing about that movie. And he's whenever I find myself wanting to rewatch The Dark Knight, it's because of Ledger. I want to, I, the primary reason I ever revisit The Dark Knight is like, I really want to watch the Joker again. <laughs> He's that good. He, that was actually, I think that was one of my first superhero movies I ever saw in a theater. And I was not wow. prepared for that performance. I was not prepared for the pencil trick. I was not prepared for any of it. And so um, I didn't go back for a few years after that because I just wasn't sure what to do with that performance. And the more I think about it, the more I think it, it's, it's one of the all-time greats, like all-time great villains, not just all-time great comic book superhero movie villains. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I would also give a shout out to Alfred Molina as Dr. Octopus in yes. Spider-Man 2. I, I mean, I've said it before on the show. I love Spider-Man 2. It's probably my favorite superhero movie. It's a good pick. Um, and a lot of that uh, has to do with just how good Molina is as Doc Ock, kind of really selling the 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 kind of mad scientist corrupted by his own creation, but mm -hmm. still retaining his, a shred of of goodness in him like I, it's such an interesting performance way better than it had to be and Molina plays it with such a light touch mm -hmm. almost a humorous touch in some moments it's just it's great it, that movie is another one where if I want to revisit it a big part of why I want to revisit it is him that is a terrific pick yeah yeah well listeners that uh uh question is still live on Twitter if you have any thoughts about uh you know some of the MCU or give another shout to Heath Ledger's Joker. If you have something a little bit more off the beaten path, we're obviously always open to hearing about that. You can tweet us at the aforementioned See Believe pod and let us know your thoughts there. Uh, don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about another comic book movie with a pretty colorful villain of its <laughs> own, Joe Johnston's The Rocketeer. To some, it was the fulfillment of a dream. To others, it was an instrument of destruction. A creation that could change the course of history. It was stolen from my factory. Where's the package? This is the FBI! What do we tell the president? Tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. It's a rocket. A rocket? Ow! What? What's the matter? I don't know. There's something under the seat. Oh, my. What are we doing here? What are you supposed to do? Is a bomb or something? No. I wouldn't touch that if I were you. 
So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen, and we watch it, and then we come back and we discuss it, talk about our thoughts. For this week's episode, Kevin, you picked The Rocketeer specifically to pair it with Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, And I think the connection here is an interesting one because The Rocketeer was directed in 1991 by Joe Johnston, who would later on, much later on, go on to direct one of the early MCU movies, uh, 2011's Captain America the first Avenger. Um, And it it was kind of fascinating to think through both of these movies and just how very different they are in terms of mode. And we can definitely get into that. But first, listeners, I'm going to give a quick synopsis in case you haven't seen the movie in a while or like me, you're coming to this movie fresh. So Um, The Rocketeer is set in 1938. And when a down-on-his-luck stunt pilot named Cliff Saccord, played by Billy Campbell, discovers a jetpack stashed in a hangar, he thinks he's found the ticket to the big time, or at the very least to a little bit more money. He dreams of flying high or maybe proposing to his girlfriend Jenny, played by Jennifer Connelly. But it turns out that he stumbled not just on a piece of technology that's going to potentially help him pay the rent, it's also going to have big implications for the war that is currently brewing in Europe. The discovery of the jetpack rockets Cliff into a serial-style adventure complete with gangsters, car chases, glamorous movie sets, and an undercover Nazi spy. So... Much of this sounds like Joe Johnston's later MCU entry, that aforementioned Captain America movie. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know, this movie came out in 1991, and since then we've had about 15-ish years of basically like superhero dominance at the box office. And that particular formula feels very different from the formula that was used to create this movie. So I'm curious to know, on a revisit, does this hold up? Yeah, so I mean, this was a, a movie that I loved as a kid. It, mm. it, it came out, you know, when I was in elementary school, and I remember just watching it over and over and over, and just really digging it. I I think it's uh, I thought at the time it was a really just a, a nice rollicking adventure. It's cool to watch somebody fly around. I. And I think I was more into the flight in this movie than I was in t- uh, into the flight of, like, say, Superman. Hmm. There's just something about um, the idea of strapping on something and flying with that rather than just having powers that really appealed to young me. Revisiting it now, I mean, it's not it's not what I would call a great movie in terms of, like, there's... You, you can conceive of a much better version of this existing. Hmm. The, you know, the, the leading... Uh, actor Billy Campbell, he's he's fine. He's doesn't have a whole lot of charisma of say the MCU's greatest assets, which is uh, their their stable of actors are are wonderful, and the strength of the the character work is really good. And I think the Rocketeer might fall down a little bit in that the the lead character is not um he he doesn't have kind of the indelibility of. Uh, some of the characters that we've seen in the MCU. That said, revisiting it, I was so gratified to encounter a movie that was a really good adventure and did have a lot of big set pieces, but also felt like it was 
it had modest ambitions. Hmm. Uh, Cliff Secord, he's not, he, he's a, a reluctant hero. He doesn't have uh, any sort of with great power comes great responsibility kind of Spider-Man motivations. He doesn't have any sort of Superman grand, I'm, I must save the world kind of ambitions. Um, there's nothing of the, of what's come into vogue in, in recent years in superhero movies, which is a lot of pontificating about what does it mean to be a hero? <laughs> and do I have what it takes to, to inspire others to be a hero? There, there's so much, great power and great responsibility and i must constantly be thinking about it and talking about it and having the entire film be about it not that there's anything wrong with that it's just it's something that's kind of been driven into the dirt by now and i'm there's diminishing returns Mm -hmm. with the rocketeer i think it's it's basically just a fun time with a guy who discovers a rocket pack and can now fly Mm -hmm. um and along the way it it kind of takes you back to uh, a comic book era where it's more like the comic book comics of Dick Tracy mm-hmm. rather than superhero punch em ups. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate Johnston's sure hand with evoking that period and making uh, an adventure that's fun um, and has a gratifying sense of stakes and danger while also not needing to blow up an entire city and have half hour long fight scenes in order to get there. Yeah. So it, I, I don't, I wouldn't call it like one of my favorite uh, comic book adventures ever. I think it's a fun time and it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So you did check it out I and did hadn't check seen it, it yet. Yeah. So is that convincing to you? What did you think of this movie? I had fun with it. Um, I feel like I probably would have been a little bit more positively inclined toward it if I had grown up with it or if I had caught it at a slightly younger age, I Mm. think. Um, I'm also, I don't know, semi-immune to nostalgia. So that's that's something that doesn't really necessarily work on me. And some of this movie feels as though tonally it is making a play for the feelings of nostalgia towards like a more golden time or a more stylish time. You've got a little bit of, you know, just about almost pre-golden age of Hollywood, like kind of climbing out of the Great Depression. A lot of really interesting art deco, like style and costume work in here, especially the Rocketeer's helmet, which I think looks really cool. There's some really good costume That's work a big in this reason movie. why I liked it over Superman too. That helmet's great. <laughs> that helmet's great fantastic. Great bit of costume design. Well, and I think crucially um, that Cliff is very much an everyman that you can kind of imagine yourself in his shoes. Like, he has a jetpack that he's able to strap onto himself, and any of us feasibly could strap a jetpack onto ourselves too if we were to be able to find it. Like it doesn't feel as though he needs to do any work in order to become that superhero. He just happens to be a decent guy who found a jetpack in an airplane hangar, and he's going to use it to rescue somebody who's out of their depth in an airplane, or he's going to use it to rescue his girl, or he's going to use it to, you know, potentially save the United States from a conspiracy involving Nazis and jetpacks as well. And I, th- I think that the movie does a really good job of balancing kind of those slightly goofier elements in a way that feels very true to the story that it's trying to tell. And in terms of tone and in terms of just the way that it approaches its story, it's not taking itself too seriously. And I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, man, there, there's, I think there's something, and, and this might just be 
maybe I'm just a sucker for this sort of thing, but mm. I really just like the the dialect and the the mode of expression of 1930s and 40s Hollywood. This is a movie that you know is set in in Hollywood. Um, one of the the central characters, Jennifer Connelly's Jenny is an aspiring actress herself. The villain is sort of a Douglas Fairbanks-style swashbuckling actor who's also secretly a fascist Played sympathizer. Played by James Bond himself. <laughs> yes, by, by Timothy Dalton, which is just... The, the cast here, you know, Billy Campbell uh, wasn't a big name and he never really broke out after this either. But uh, aside from him, there's some really great actors in here. You've got Alan Arkin as sort of the the Alfred to Billy Campbell's reluctant Batman. Mm -hmm. You've got Paul Sorvino playing a gangster as he so perfectly does in many, many of his roles. Jennifer Connelly's wonderful. Dalton is a wonderful, almost literally mustache twirling villain. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's a really fun movie. And these, these actors do so much to kind of, you know, keep it moving lightly along. There's no sense that, that anyone's trying to either phone it in or, or try to overplay it. It's, it's kind of the perfect sort of entertainment that you can imagine Spielberg making in the eighties. Everybody's having a lot of fun. I also want to shout out Margot Martindale is in this as well. Oh, I, I, I didn't know who Mar Margot Martindale was when I first saw us rewatching it. I was like, that's Margot Martindale. Character, <laughs> beloved character actor, Margot Martindale, yes. as they say in BoJack Horseman. And also Terry O'Quinn as Howard Hughes. Oh, how, how could I forget? Yeah. I mean, it was very strange for me. I was a lost person growing up. So mm -hmm. like the one thing that I do feel very nostalgic towards is lost. And it was very odd to see Terry O'Quinn with hair and a pencil thin mustache, honestly. But he's also, I, I feel like even though he's in only a couple of scenes, it feels as though he's striking that right tone of he's, you know, kind of the the rich inventor who's out there to, you know, further the interests of the United States. And he's in, in the world of the movie, he's got all of the best intentions and he's worried about his invention being used or falling into the wrong hands or being used as a weapon. And I think there's, there's a couple of lines of dialogue where he mentions that he's worried about that. So he's not going to create any more of this thing that he's made because he's thought about the repercussions of just putting this thing out into the world and letting anybody get the chance to use it. And then the movie just kind of leaves it at that. It doesn't really need to draw a particularly fine point on it. It's made its point. And then throughout the rest of the movie, as you know, uh, Cliff is, is being chased around by Nazis and by gangsters who all want a piece of the pie um, from the invention that he's got literally strapped to his back. Um, you kind of get the sense of the stakes without actually needing to be told the stakes or needing to be told like, yeah, this is a bad thing if these people get a hold of it because they've already told you who they are and they've already told you what they're going to do if they get a hold of it. I, I think the – so the, the screenplay is interesting because you you touched on it earlier. It's It's got a, a simplicity to it that's – yeah, you know, if you're feeling uncharitable, you could say it's a little bit too thin. Like it's um, maybe a little sketch sketched out in places. But also, I think it's it captures a kind of philosophy of storytelling that you often that fits perfectly with sort of a comic book movie, which is that you don't need to really make something super complex. You just need to tell a story. You need to evoke things. 
in a way that is very grokkable. Mm. So I, I think about that scene that you mentioned where uh, Howard Hughes decides that you know this technology shouldn't exist, and he you know he throws the the blueprints in a fireplace, and somebody tells him, "Sir, I wish you would reconsider." <laughs> and Howard Hughes says, "Nope." I'm not going to do it. You tell the president that Howard Hughes says so. And it's just it's a piece of piece of dialogue that's very on the nose and and yet also feels it it feels just modulated just right where it it's telling a sim- simple story um and it's doing it with a sense of panache that just carries it off. And I think a lot of that has to do with Joe Johnston's directing both of how he frames these these scenes and also the way he directs the actors to just kind of like don't overplay it kind of there's a workman likeness to i guess that Hmm. that makes me think of old you know golden age studio films where the important thing was telling a, a very clear story simply and appealingly not so much to make something incredibly complex whether that's a feature or a bug depends maybe on your preferences. My preferences, it, it works for me. I like cl- I like the clarity of approach. And I like that, um, like you'd mentioned, it, it feels workmanlike. And I think for me, a lot of that came out in the way that the, the movie is shot as well. Like it's, it's very straightforward. It's very dead on. There's nothing really all that showy happening um, to my mind. And the movie works like that because... All of these characters are framed as being just a touch larger than life. I think the camera is angled up a little bit at them, but only a little bit. It's very subtle. It's not like you're staring up their noses or up at the ceiling or anything like that. Um, it's just a little bit of tricks in order to make these characters feel as though they've they've kind of jumped off the page of a comic book. There's a lot of, you know, the bold lines, the bold colors, um, and a lot of very straightforward direction. But... I think that that works. And I think that that really works with the two characters that I jived with the most. So Cliff, I think we we can leave by the side. <laughs> I wasn't Sorry, all that Billy interested Campbell. in him. Sorry, Billy Campbell. <laughs> um, but uh, I really loved Jennifer Connelly as Jenny. I think she's fantastic in this. And I think she knows precisely the kind of story that she has been brought on to tell. And she does so much with um, a couple of lines... And, and and I think that the script does a service to her, too, because she's not just relegated to the girlfriend character, although that would have been very easy to do. Um, I think the script does a good job of showing her as being a, a person with her own wants and needs and interests and allowing her kind of the breathing space to put a, a little bit of additional spin and personality on that as well. Um, and when she runs into the other character that I would I would love to talk about, um, which would be Timothy Dalton as, as our villain, the two of them have kind of been in sort of the same Hollywood circles up until this point, because he is the number three box office draw in America, as he, as he says, as he brags about. And she is an up and coming actress. They've been on the same film set. He even gets her fired at one point and then notices her and realizes that she can give him what he wants, which is information about this rocket that he's after because he is the Nazi spy. This sounds so convoluted. <laughs> and at the same time, all of their motivations are are refreshingly clear. Like we know exactly who our villain is the moment that we see him. And we know exactly who Jenny is the moment that we see her. And we can get a sense for 
the level of ambition that she feels and how she wants to really excel in her field, even though everybody else around her doesn't really believe that she's going to be able to follow through on that dream. So when Jenny finally like comes face to face with Neville Sinclair, with, with Timothy Dalton, and she finds herself in a situation where she needs to be able to lie to him and she needs to be able to act her way out of the trap that she's in, um, she's able to do it. And I think for her as a character, it's enough for her to be able to do a scene with with Neville Sinclair and then be able to pull one over on him and the level of satisfaction that she gets out of saying, I played a scene with Neville Sinclair and I fooled him. <laughs> um, that tells me so much about her character and that makes me feel so good about watching her grow as a character and as as an actor in her own right throughout the course of the movie as well. Like she doesn't need anybody else to validate her her choices or her wants or desires. She just needs to be able to do her job the best that she possibly can in order to save the day. And I, I just, I love that scene and I love the way that she delivers that line. That's a big applause line for sure. It's a lot of fun. And I think uh, Connolly, Jenny, in Connolly's hands, Jenny is less a damsel in distress and more a dame in distress, mm -hmm. which is... It's a subtle distinction, but I think she knows how to make – basically, she's kind of playing two things here. She she is definitely playing sort of the very – the doe-eyed kind of ingenue who – who does need to be rescued, um, who is the love interest. And, and primarily she's referred to out throughout as, as the girlfriend or the girl mm -hmm. um, or the dish. Yeah. Um, but she, so Con, but Connelly is somehow able to, to play that. Like there, there's a lot of such where she's just, you know, very wide eyed and she's, you know, speaking in that low husky voice. Um, but she also gets moments where she folds that into uh, some more steely scenes where she's got some some steel in her spine as well. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that is credit to Connolly so more than the script. I think um, she's able to to carry that off uh, simply because she she can play both modes, but she's able to somehow meld them into a per uh, into a character who feels like an actual person more so than a plot device. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, that's a credit to her, her performance. Um, Timothy Dalton's a lot of fun. Oh, also. he's fantastic. He's, he's, he's so good. He's just good at playing just this very uh, European bad guy. He's, he's got that hard stare. He's got the mustache. He's got the grin. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's, he's wonderful. And uh, the, again, the way that the movie kind of frames him as, a uh, guy who could plausibly be a Hollywood A-lister. You might not have heard of him, but the kinds of movies that he's in, the advertisements we see for his films uh, sprinkled throughout in the production design, I think is, again, it's little touches like that that take the movie from, you know, kind of an agreeable entertainment to something a little, you know, higher than that. Again, it's modestly ambitious. It's not trying to do a whole lot. But I think Johnston has a savvy to the way that he sets up this world and directs these actors that I think make it a, a worthwhile use of, of time. Definitely. Yeah. Also, I can't think of another movie that's kind of name dropped Myrna Loy just casually the way mm -hmm. that this movie does too. Mm -hmm. It's smart about Hollywood history without having to nudge you in the ribs too hard about it. There is a moment where the movie does kind of poke its, its elbow in my ribs a little bit too much, I think, but it was also a moment where 
I kind of appreciated it because I called the line coming. So one of the goons is dressed up basically exactly like Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. And he's lumbering around in like these gigantic, slightly under tailored, like black clothes and black jacket um, with gigantic hands and a, a larger than life face. It looks like there's a mask on the actor's face as well. And at one point, like another character just refers to him as I, I think either Boris Karloff or as Frankenstein. I, I cannot remember which. He, he says, easy, Frankenstein, you ain't bulletproof. <laughs> exactly. And um, I think that character also dies in a very similar way to how Karloff's Frankenstein dies in the first movie. Um, by fire going down off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Frankenstein's monster wasn't on a an, on an exploding zeppelin, but other than that, yeah. I mean, other than that, I mean, it's still it's still death by fire and and screaming, which <laughs> I feel like is just enough of a parallel that it worked for me. Um, it felt like a solid Hollywood in joke without being too like here's what we're doing here. You know, they'll call it out in the script a little bit, but it also isn't necessary in order to enjoy it either. Yeah, and I think the. Uh, there, there's a, a wittiness to some of those moments. Uh, Johnston having Neville Sinclair go down in flames literally by crashing into the Hollywood sign and yes. blowing up the the land part of it. I think it's just, yeah, it, it's 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 got a certain flair to it. And I think uh, we haven't even talked about James Horner's score, which is one of my yeah. favorites of his. Um, it, it's I think those things. Um, even though it's there, there are parts of it where I kind of I, I think that the cinematography might be a little flat. It, mm-hmm. it it betrays its modestness in in less appealing ways uh, at at various points throughout the picture. But I think taken as a whole, there's just a a thrill to watching a movie that just kind of wants to tell a fun story and then be done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe I'm just looking at rose-colored glasses because we're kind of in a franchise death march these days with these kind of movies. But I don't know. I I, was, I enjoyed uh, revisiting it. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, you, you had an entertaining time with it too. Yeah, I had fun with it. I enjoyed it. I'm delighted that um, Neville Sinclair was brought down by chewing gum and that... <laughs> Um, and that, uh, I don't know that I got to watch Jennifer Connelly be awesome. Like that's really all I need from a movie, honestly. I, I mean, what else do you need? Uh, listeners, that is our watch list review of Joe Johnston's The Rocketeer. If you had a chance to catch up with it or want to catch up with it in the future, it is of course streaming on Disney plus, uh, or it's on demand on most other, uh, streaming rental platforms. Next week's, uh, watch list segment, uh, is one that I'm looking forward to catching up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to pair it with something that's going to be heavy material, but we're going to, we're going to dig into it. This is, uh, she said the, uh, film about, uh, the Harvey Weinstein scandal, uh, journalistically focused. So mm-hmm. Sarah, you picked something that would match with that fairly well. Yeah. So I ended up picking uh, Shirkers by Sandy Tan. It's a documentary that's available, I believe, exclusively on Netflix. Um, but Sandy Tan um, was kind of a punk rock filmmaker who tried to make her own indie movie in the early 90s in Singapore and um, lost the film and lost the footage under uh, mysterious circumstances. And then she was able to get a hold of that footage again. And so um, Shirkers is the documentary that traces that process of her trying to get her film back from somebody who essentially like was predatory towards her art and towards her and her friends as well. Um, But she does so with a lot of 
good humor and I think some verve. And it's it's really the story of a, a woman kind of getting to be able to tell the story that she was never able to tell in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that meshes fairly nicely with She Said while getting at it from a very different angle, I think. I'm looking forward to catching up with that one for sure. Uh, listeners, like Sarah said, if you want to watch along with us on next week's Watchlist segment, Shirkers is uh, streaming on Netflix for subscribers. So check it out if you have a chance. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.